Chapter Three, Part One of The Rock of Chickamauga. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Rock of Chickamauga by Joseph A. Altshieler. Chapter Three Grant Moves. Part One. The Winchester Regiment had not suffered greatly. A dozen men who had fallen were given speedy burial, and all the wounded were taken away on horseback by their friends. Dick rejoiced greatly at their escape from Forrest, and the daring and skill of Grierson. He felt anew that he was in stronger hands in the West than he had been in the East. In the East things seemed to go wrong nearly always, and the West they seemed to go right nearly always. It could not be chance continued so long. He believed in his soul that it was Grant, the heroic Thomas, and the great fighting powers of the Western men, used to all the roughness of life out of doors and on the border. They turned their course toward the Mississippi, and that afternoon they met a Union scout, who told them that Grant, now in the very heart of the far south, was gathering his forces for a daring attack upon Grand Gulf, a Confederate fortress on the Mississippi. In the north and at Washington, his venture was regarded with alarm. There was a telegram to him to stop, but it was sent too late. He had disappeared in the southern wilderness. But Dick understood. He had both knowledge and intuition. Colonel Winchester, on his long and dearest scout, had learned that the Confederate forces in the south were scattered and their leaders in doubt. Grant, taking a daring offensive and hiding his movements, had put them on the defensive, and there were so many points to defend that they did not know which to choose. Joe Johnston, just recovered from his wound at Fair Oaks the year before, and a general of the first rank, was coming, but he was not yet here. Meanwhile, Pemberton held the chief command, but he seemed to lack energy and decision. There were forces under other generals scattered along the river, including 8,000 commanded by Bowen, who held Grand Gulf, but concert of action did not exist among them. This knowledge was not Dick's alone. It extended to every man in the regiment, and when the colonel urged them to greater speed, they responded gladly. If we don't ride faster, he said, we won't be up in time for the taking of Grand Gulf. No greater spur was needed, and the Winchester regiment went forward as fast as horses could carry them. I take it that Grant means to scoop in the Johnnies in detail, said Warner. It seems so, said Pennington. This is a big country down here, and we can fight one Confederate army while another is mired up a hundred miles away. That's General Grant's plan. He doesn't look like any hero of romance, but he acts like one. He plunges into the middle of the enemy, and if he gets licked, he's up and at him again right away. Night closed in, and they stopped at an abandoned plantation. It seemed to Dick that the houses were abandoned everywhere, where they spent the night. The troopers would have willingly pushed on through the darkness, but the horses were so near exhaustion that another hour or two would have broken them down permanently. Moreover, Colonel Winchester did not feel much apprehension of an attack now. Forrest had certainly turned in another direction, and they were too close to the Union lines to be attacked by any other foe. The house on this plantation was not by any means so large and fine as Bellevue, but, like the other, it had broad piazzas all about it, and Dick, in view of his strenuous experience, was allowed to take his saddle as a pillow and his blankets and go to sleep, 
soon after dark in a comfortable place against the wall never was slumber quicker or sweeter there was not an unhealthy tissue in his body and most of his nerves had disappeared in a life amid battles scoutings and marchings he slept heavily all through the night inhaling new strength and vitality with every breath of the crisp fresh air there was no interruption this time and early in the morning the regiment was up and away they descended now into lower grounds near the mississippi all around them was a vast and luxuriant vegetation cut by sluggish streams and bayous but the same desolation reigned everywhere the people had fled before the advance of the armies late in the afternoon they saw pickets in blue then the mississippi and a little later they rode into a union camp dick said colonel winchester i shall want you to go with the senior officers and myself to report to general grant on the other side of the mississippi you rode on that mission to grierson and he may want to ask you questions dick was glad to go with them he was eager to see once more the man who had taken henry and donelson and who had hung on at shiloh until buell came the general's tent was in a grove on a bit of high ground above and he was sitting before it on a little camp stool smoking a short cigar and gazing reflectively in the direction of grand gulf he greeted the three officers quietly but with warmth and then he listened to colonel winchester's detailed account of what he had seen and learned in his raid toward jackson it was a long narrative showing how the southern forces were scattered and as he listened grant's face began to show satisfaction but he seldom interrupted and you think they have no large force at jackson he said i'm quite sure of it replied colonel winchester grant chewed his cigar a little while and then said grierson is doing well it was an achievement for you and him to beat off forrest it will raise the prestige of our cavalry which needs it i believe it was you lieutenant mason who brought grierson it was chiefly sir a sergeant named whitley i rode with him and outranked him but he is a veteran of the plains and it was he who did all the real work the general's stern features were lightened with a smile i'm glad you give the sergeant credit he said not many officers would do it he listened a while longer and then the three were permitted to withdraw to their regiment which was posted back of grand gulf and which had quickly become a part of an army flushed with victory and eager for further action before sunset dick warner and pennington looked at grand gulf a little village standing on high cliffs overlooking the mississippi just below the point where the dark stream known as the big black river empties into the father of waters around the crown of the heights was the ring of batteries and lower down enclosing the town was another ring far off on the mississippi the three saw puffing black smoke marking the presence of a union fleet which never for one instant in the whole course of the war relaxed its grip of steel upon the confederacy dick's heart thrilled at the sight of the brave ships he felt then as most of us have felt since that whatever happened the american navy would never fail i hear the ships are going to bombard said warner i heard so too said pennington and i heard also that they will have to do it under the most difficult circumstances the water in front of grand gulf is so deep that the ships can't anchor it has a swift current too making at that point more than six knots an hour there are powerful eddies too and the batteries crowning the cliffs are so high that the cannon of the gunboats will have trouble in reaching them still mr pessimistic said dick remember what the gunboats did at port henry 
you'll find the same kind of men here. I wasn't trying to discourage you. I was merely telling the worst first. We're going to win. We nearly always win here in the West. But it seems to me the country is against us now. This doesn't look much like the plains, Dick, with its big, deep rivers, its high bluffs along the banks, and its miles and miles of swamp or wet lowlands. How wide would you say the Mississippi is here? Somewhere between a mile and a mile and a half. And they say it's two or three hundred feet deep. Look at the steamers, boys. How many are there? I count seven pyramids of smoke, said Warner. Four in one group and three in another. All the pyramids are becoming a little faint as the twilight is advancing. Dick, you call me a cold mathematical person, but this vast river flowing in its deep channel, the dark bluffs up there, and the vast forests would make me feel mighty lonely if you fellows were not here. It's a long way to Vermont. Fifteen hundred or maybe two thousand miles, said Dick. But look how fast the dark is coming. I was wrong in saying it's coming. It just drops down. The smoke of the steamers has melted into the night, and you don't see them any more. The surface of the river has turned black as ink. The bluffs of Grand Gulf have gone, and we've turned back three or four hundred years. What do you mean by going back three or four hundred years? asked Warner, looking curiously at Dick. Why don't you see them out there? See them out there? See what? Why, the queer little ships with the high sides and prows. On my soul, George, they're the caravels of Spain. Look, they're stopping. Now they lower something in black over the side of the first caravel. I see a man in a black robe like a priest, holding a cross in his hand, and standing at the ship's edge saying something. I think he's praying, boys. Now sailors cut the rope and hold the dark object. It falls into the river and disappears. It's the burial of De Soto in the Father of Waters which he discovered. Dick, you're dreaming, exclaimed Pennington. Yes, I know, but once there was a Chinaman who dreamed that he was a lily. When he woke up, he didn't know whether he was a Chinaman who had dreamed he was a lily, or a lily now dreaming he was a Chinaman. I like that story, Dick, but you've got too much imagination. A tale of the death and burial of De Soto has always been so vivid to you that you just stood there and recreated the scene for yourself. Of course that's it, said Pennington, but why can't a fellow create things with his mind when things that don't exist jump right up before his eyes? I've often seen the mirage, generally about dark, far out on the western plains. I've seen a beautiful lake and green gardens, where there was nothing but the brown swells rolling on. I concede all you say, said Dick readily. I have flashes sometimes, and so does Harry Kenton and others I know. Flashes? What do you mean? asked Warner. Why, sort of a lightning stroke out of the past, something that lasts only a second, but in which you have a share. Boys, one day I saw myself a Carthaginian soldier following Hannibal over the Alps. Maybe, said Pennington, we have lived other lives on this earth, and sometimes a faint glimpse of them comes to us. It's just a guess. That's so, said Warner, and we'd better be getting back to the regiment. Grand Gulf, defended by Bowen and 8,000 good men, is really enough for us. I think we're going to see some lively fighting here. The heavy boom of a cannon from the upper circle of batteries swept over the vast sheet of water flowing so swiftly toward the gulf. The sound came back in dying echoes, and when there was complete silence among besieged and besiegers, the Winchesters had found a good solid place, a little hill among the marshes, and they were encamped there with their horses. Dick had no messages to carry, but he remained awake, 
while his comrade slept soundly. He had slept so much the night before that he had no desire for sleep now. From his position, he could see the Confederate bluffs and a few lights moving there, but otherwise the two armies were under a blanket of darkness. He again felt deeply the sense of isolation and loneliness, not for himself alone, but for the whole army. Grant had certainly shown supreme daring in pushing far into the south, and the government at Washington had cause for alarm lest he be reckless. If there were any strong hand to draw together the forces of the Confederacy, they could surely crush him, but he had already learned in this war that those who struck swift and hard were sure to win. That was Stonewall Jackson's way, and it seemed to be Grant's way, too. Still unable to sleep, he walked to a better position, where he could see the shimmering dark of the river and the misty heights with their two circles of cannon. A tall figure standing there turned at his tread, and he recognized Colonel Winchester. Uneasy at our position, Dick? said the colonel, fathoming his mind at once. A little, sir, but I think General Grant will pull us through. He will, Dick, and he'll take this fort, too. Grant's the hammer we've been looking for. Look at his record. He's had backsets, but in the end he's succeeded in everything he's tried. The Confederate government and leaders have made a mess of their affairs in the West and Southwest, and General Grant is taking full advantage of it. Do we attack in the morning, sir? We do, Dick though not by land. Porter, with his seven gunboats, is going to open on the fort, but it will be a hazardous undertaking. Because of the nature of the river, sir? That's it. They can't anchor, and with full steam up, caught in all the violent eddies that the river makes rounding the point, they'll have to fire as best they can. But the gunboats did great work at Fort Henry, sir. So they did, Dick, and we've come a long way south since then which means that we're making progress, and a lot of it here in the West. Well, we'll see tomorrow. They walked back to their own camp, and sleep came to Dick at last, but he awoke early and found that the thrill of expectation was running through the whole army. Their position did not yet enable them to attack on land, but far out on the river they saw the gunboats moving. Porter, the commander, divided them into two groups. Four of the gunboats were to attack the lower circle of batteries, and three were to pour their fire upon the upper ring. Dick, by day, even more than by night, recognized the difficulty of the task. Before them flowed the vast, swift current of the Mississippi, gleaming now in the sunshine, and beyond were the frowning bluffs, crested and ringed with cannon. Grant had with him twenty thousand men and his seven gunboats, and Bowen eight thousand troops, but if the affair lasted long, other southern armies would surely come. Dick and his comrades had little to do but watch, and thousands watched with them. When the sun was fully risen, the seven boats steamed out in two groups, four farther down the river in order to attack the lower batteries, while the other three up the stream would launch their fire against those on the summit. He watched the crest of the cliffs. He saw plainly through his glasses the muzzles of cannon and men moving about the batteries. Then there was a sudden blaze of fire and column of smoke, and a shell struck in the water near one of the gunboats. The boat replied, and its comrades also sent shot and shell toward the frowning summit. Then the batteries, both lower and upper, replied with full vigor, and all the cliffs were wrapped in fire and smoke. The boats steamed in closer and closer, pouring an incessant fire from their heavy guns, and both rings of batteries on the cliffs responded. The water of the river spouted up in innumerable little geysers, 
and now and then a boat was struck. Over both cliffs and river a great cloud of smoke lowered. It grew so dense that Dick and his comrades, watching with eagerness, were unable to tell much of what was happening. Yet as the smoke lifted, or was shot through with the blaze of cannon fire, they saw that their prophecies were coming true. The boats in water too deep for anchorage were caught in the powerful eddies, and their captains had to show their best seamanship while they steamed back and forth. The battle between ship and shore went on for a long time. It seemed at last to the watching Union soldiers that the fire from the lower line of batteries was diminishing. "'We're making some way,' said Warner. "'It looks like it,' said Dick. "'Their lower batteries are not so well protected as the upper. "'If we were only over there, helping with our own guns. "'But there's a big river in between, "'and we've got to leave it to the boats for today, anyhow. "'Look again at those lower batteries. "'Their fire is certainly decreasing. "'I can see it die down. "'Yes, and now it's stopped entirely. "'The boats have done good work.' "'A tremendous cheer burst from the troops on the west shore.' as they saw how much their gallant little gunboats had achieved. Every gun in the lower batteries was silent now, but the top of the cliffs was still alive with flame. The batteries there were far from silent. Instead, their fire was increasing in volume and power. The four gunboats that had silenced the lower batteries now moved up to the aid of their comrades, and the seven made a united effort, steaming forward in a sort of half-moon, and raining shot and shell upon the summits. But the guns there, well sheltered and having every advantage over rocking steamers, maintained an accurate and deadly fire. The decks of the gunboats were swept more than once. Many men were killed or wounded. Heavy shot crashed through their sides, and Dick expected every instant to see some one of them sunk by a huge exploding shell. They can't win! They can't win, he exclaimed. They'd better draw off before they're sunk. So they had, said Warner sadly. Boats are at a disadvantage fighting batteries. The old darkey was right when he preferred a train wreck to a boat wreck. If the train smashed, there you are on the solid ground. But if the boat blows up, where are you? That's sense. The boats are retiring. It's sad, but it's sense. The boat that steams away will live to fight another day. Dick was dejected. He fancied he could hear the cheering of their foes at what looked like a Union defeat, but he recalled that Grant, the bulldog, led them. He would never think of retiring, and he was sure to be ready with some new attempt. The gunboats drew off to the far western shore and lay there, puffing smoke defiantly. Their fight with the batteries had lasted five hours, and they had suffered severely. It seemed strange to Dick that none of them had been sunk, and in fact it was strange. All had been hit many times, and one had been pierced by nearly fifty shot or shell. Their killed or wounded were numerous, but their commanders and crews were still resolute, and ready to go into action whenever General Grant wished. "'Spunky little fellows,' said Pennington. "'We don't have many boats out where I live, but I must hand a bunch of laurel to the Navy every time.' "'And you can bind wreaths around their hair of those navy fellows, too,' said Warner, "'and sing songs in their honour, whether they win or lose.' "'Now I wonder what's next,' said Dick. "'To their surprise, the gunboats opened fire again just before sundown, "'and the batteries replied fiercely. "'Rolling clouds of smoke mingled with the advancing twilight, "'and the great guns from either side flashed through the coming darkness.' 
then from a stray word or two dropped by colonel winchester dick surmised the reason of this new and rather distant cannonade he knew that general grant had transports up the river above grand gulf and he believed that they were now coming down the stream under cover of the bombardment and the darkness he confided his belief to warner who agreed with him presently they saw new coils of smoke in the darkness and knew they were right the transports steaming swiftly were soon beyond the range of the batteries and then the gunboats drawing off dropped down the river with them End of chapter 3 part 1